following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. I cannot think of anything worse than a father abusing his children. I shudder at the thought of a a father slapping a little four or five years old, or of some other way abusing the body of that child. To every one of us, it is reprehensible, and it is unimaginable that a father could treat his own flesh and blood in that way with such anger. But Job, in the section before us, questioning God as a father who is abusing him. He has known God as father. We saw in the first part of chapter 10, he had known the the goodness of God in days past. But suddenly, the way that God is appearing to him, it's not as a father. It is as an enemy. It is one who is out to destroy him. In chapters 9 and 10, Job is wrestling again with God's actions toward him. In chapter 9, he must defend himself against the accusations of Zophar that he is um, slandering the justice of God. No, he asserts that he believes the justice of God. He knows he can only be saved by the grace of God. What he doesn't understand is as one who has been pardoned by God, why now is he being treated as if he were wicked and unrighteous? Why are his friends allowed to slander him in the way? Why is God treating him as an enemy? And there is for Job no answer. He said if he could, he'd go into the courtroom of God, but he can't do that. There's no one to take him there. There's no umpire. There's no mediator. He ends in that first part of his speech on this this note that if I could but go and, and could speak. Well, in chapter 10, he does speak. He, in the first seven verses, asserts the goodness of God, but he says that he, he has every right to continue because he says, I loathe my own life and I will give vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. You see, God's condemning him. Um, by allowing him to be considered a wicked man by those who are around him. And that's just not consistent with who he knows he is in his own conscience and how God has acted toward him in the past. Well, in 8 through 22, um, he accentuates his problem. As he has known God as father, but now the father seems to be the enemy. The father seems to be... uh, abusing him. So I want to show you here, if a believer fails to understand the ways of the Father, he will fall into despair. If a believer fails to understand the ways of the Father, he will fall into despair. And we see the bewilderment of the believer who does not understand the ways of the Father and the lament of the believer who does not understand the ways of a Father. And Job expresses bewilderment in the first 17 verses of this section. 
And he begins with a, a series of reflections, actually of questions, with respect to what he knows about God and God in his life and what it is that God is doing in his life. And he moves here, he's dealing with his own personal creation, and he's moving from, you could say, from the abstract to the concrete. Now he begins with a very important statement in verse 8, Your hands fashioned me and made me altogether, and would you destroy me? Perhaps you can recognize the language here is a reflection of Genesis 2-7, where the Holy Spirit teaches us through Moses that God formed Adam uh, from the dust of the ground and breathed life into him. And what Job is saying is that that initial creation of man and then Eve from the rib of Adam is a picture of what God does for every single being on the face of the earth, but he makes it personal, you see. Now, the first word formed is the word that means to engrave, and it's very much parallel to the Hebrew term that Moses will use later um, from which we get the word formed. And the Greek that translates that, both those words, is the word for me to get plastic. And so this is, this is a shaping, but Job is talking about his personally being shaped in the womb, made from the creation account when it's added to one of these words of creation has to do not simply with an act of God, but with a perfecting act of God. And so Job is confessing here that God himself shaped him in the womb perfectly according to his good pleasure. Now, in light of that, he's asking God, why would you destroy me? You went to all of this care uh, to make me, but now you're casting me off. And, And the word destroy is literally the word swallow. As the earth swallowed Dathan and Abiram, he says, you're swallowing me in your wrath. You're, you're tossing me about as, as a, a rag doll. You're, you're throwing me into, uh, into the heap pile. So he begins with this most general and abstract statement. But before we leave it, let me remind you of something very important. And that is we do not live in a closed universe. A universe that is simply governed by laws that were put into effect uh, by God's creation. It's true that in the birth of every procreation conception of every human being and of every animal, uh, there are physical laws, I'll call them the habits of God, are at work. But I want you to confess what Job confesses here. In your creation, it's God who formed you in the womb of your mother. It's God who perfected you in the womb of your mother. This also reminds us that... um, Be content with who you are and what you look like. Because it's God who formed you in the womb according to his own good pleasure. It also is a statement to us why we must oppose abortion, even uh, in the case of conception because of rape or incest. Because it's only God who shapes and forms in the womb of a mother. Well, the next thing that Job says that he knows about God and is not consistent with what's happening is that he has, in a sense, been a God of covenant mercy. Uh, Remember now that you made me, this is verse 9, as clay, would you turn me into dust again? Now, the word remember is most often used in a covenant context. 
we should use that word with God as we claim his promises to us and, and to our children. Remember, O Lord, that which you've said. Act on the basis of what you've done. Now, here Job is asking God uh, to remember him and don't treat him according to the covenant curse. You see, that's, again, the language now goes back to uh, Genesis 3, where we read, uh, God says to Adam as he casts him out of the garden, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And he's saying, you did make me from clay, not in the sense that we are actually made from dirt, but that's really what our bodies turn into when they decay. Um, but remember me. Don't treat me according to this covenant curse. Now, we all are going to die. We're all going to turn back to the dust of the earth. But he's asking God not to treat him as simply a stranger, one who's been left under the covenant curse, because he has known God as Father. He's known God as someone who has delivered him from that covenant curse. And yet, all that God's doing in his life seems that Job is living under the curse and not the blessing of God. And then beginning in verse 10, he comes to this delightful description of how a baby is shaped in the womb of its mother. And the insight is profound. Uh, did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, knit me together with bones and sinews? You've granted me life and loving kindness, and your care has preserved my spirit. Now, it's quite remarkable what the ancient fathers knew. It's very commonsensical. They know that uh, life in the womb begins as liquid. And uh, then in the wonderful providence of God, the, the God who formed us and um, affects us in the womb of our mothers is the God that does it in this manner. Now, you boys and girls have seen an egg in a bowl, right? Just one egg there in a bowl, just kind of a, of a slimy mess until you do something worthwhile with it. And that's really the language here. Uh, poured out like milk, um, but it's just this liquid mess. But, but then it begins to harden, and so it curdles like cheese. But, but the remarkable thing here is, and... You know, only God can do this, is that he takes that liquid, he takes that egg, he begins to shape it into a body. And then notice what Job tells us that God does with that. You clothe me with skin and flesh. Now, skin and flesh is different. The flesh is that which covers our inward part. The skin is that which protects the flesh. And after the sermon, I will show you where my skin has been removed, and there's flesh. So we all have skin and flesh. And that flesh, then, tells us, uh, will cover um, what he has done inside us as he knit me together with bones and sinews. So it's amazing that God could take the egg and create this glorious being. Perfectly designed again, with everything about the body to protect it 
and to enable us to grow and to develop it. And Job marvels at this, and you and I need to marvel at the, at the beauty and glory of what our God does in the womb of a woman every time life is conceived. But Job goes beyond what God has done simply in procreation. Uh, he says that you've granted me life and loving kindness. Now here, it's not just physical life. No, it is spiritual life. Because it's joined with loving kindness, which is God's covenant love for his people. This will be anticipate what the psalmist says in Psalm 100 uh, when he says, um, uh, you made us and we're not our own. We are the sheep of your pasture. Yes, he's made us physically. Job has shown that. But now he's confessing, as the psalmist confesses in Psalm 119, 73, you made me in my mother's womb and given me a soul because the psalmist then says, teach me then your law. And so he says, but Lord, this is, in the first place, this is not impersonal. This is what you've done for me, Job, who's been your son. And not only did you make me, but he says, God, you, you gave me new life. You gave me a spiritual life. You uh, have shown that covenant love to me in the past. And he, he says that, um, in addition, that he has lived under God's providential care. In the end, then, of verse 12, your care has preserved my spirit, my soul. And the word uh, care has to do with God's providential oversight. And preserve is to guard, to keep. So you see the confession that Job is making here, what he has known about God or what he thought he knew about God as father. But look now at his complaint or his conclusion. Yet these things, verse 13, you have concealed in your heart. I know that it is within you. He's known what is in God's heart toward him. He's experienced God's grace and favor, but now he says, it's all locked up. Much in the way, if, if we get estranged with someone, a, a husband from wife, wife from husband, and all the affections are locked up. Uh, they don't come out. He says, God, what I've known of you as a father, these fatherly affections, well, they're all locked up. I know they're within you, but they're locked up. Basically, you're an absent father. You're an abusive father. Now, he expands on this as he speaks of them being locked up. He then says in verses 14 and following, If I sin, then you would take note of me and would not acquit me of my guilt. If I'm wicked, woe to me. If I'm righteous, I dare not lift up my head. I'm sated with disgrace and conscious of my ministry misery, or literally see my misery. Now, in the first part of verse 14, he's confessing what he's already confessed in chapter 9. And that is, he knows that uh, if he were practicing sin, that God would take note of that. Boys and girls, you know that God knows everything that you do. You might sneak around. You might be hiding in the backyard. Um, but God knows. Isn't that what Job says here? All of us need to understand that when we're alone with our computers. If I sin, you would take note of me and would not acquit me of my guilt. 
What Job is saying is, if I continue in sin, then I know what I deserve. I would deserve what is happening to me. He confesses that. Remember, his problem is he's not living as one who, from his idea of God's justice, deserves what is happening to him. And then these very um, oh, frightening words take heed to them. If I'm wicked, woe to me. I hope you understand that as you sit here this morning. If you're wicked, if you remain in the practice of sin, if you refuse to come to God through Christ Jesus, indeed, woe to you. A temporal woe, a woe now, but an eternal woe, the woe of God's eternal wrath and condemnation. So do not continue in the practice of wickedness, what we read in our reading of the law, if in fact, you are immoral, impure, and covetousness, which is covetous, which is idolatry, then there's no eternal life for you. Only until you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you can write this across your doorpost and write it on your tomb. If I'm wicked, woe is me. But then here is his problem in verse 15. And if I'm righteous, I dare not lift up my head. I am sated, I am filled with disgrace, and conscious are see my misery. His head is down, so to speak, in, in shame. Again, if you've seen a child that's been abused, and if you haven't, you've seen a dog that's been abused, and somebody lifts their hand, what happens? Lurks away. The head goes down. And, and Job is saying, you know, I know that I've been the son of God. I've enjoyed the favor of God, but now I can't even lift up my head. There's no dignity left to me. If I lift it up, I'm simply filled with more disgrace and misery in my life. So it's not just what has happened to Job. And no longer is it the physical things that happened to Job. It's his spiritual suffering. It's this increased darkness of God, the impenetrable nature of what God is doing in his life. And it's aggravated now by the, uh, the sophistry of these three counselors. And God is heaping upon him misery and disgrace. He continues that he says uh, in verse uh, 16, Should my head be lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion. And again, you would show your power against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your anger toward me. Hardship after hardship is with me. He says he can't even continue on. If he, if he sought to lift his head, if he sought to, uh, to live his life, well, he says God is hunting him the way someone would hunt a, a lion, a ferocious beast. He sees God treating him uh, like that. He, he says God would arraign his power against him. It's just not consistent with what he thought he knew. In fact, he, he wouldn't just show his power. He will renew his witnesses. And, and this would be further afflictions. Again, not physical afflictions at this point, but spiritual afflictions. Darkness. No answer to prayer. No hope. Attack, attack, attack. He said you would renew your witnesses 
your anger would increase toward me as if it had not been enough. And this hardship after hardship is with me is literally change and war is upon me are changes of war. And this signified, and this is something that God will correct, that God was his enemy at war with him. The English Standard Version translates this, you bring fresh troops against me. Perhaps you've read accounts in history of of battles, and it seems that uh, uh, one side is winning, and, and suddenly fresh troops are poured in upon them. And to their dismay, they then uh, are defeated and destroyed. That's, that's how Job feels at this point. So I, I hope you can feel his tension here. Because he thought God was his father. God had testified to him through creation and grace that he was his father. But he was not experiencing what he thought a father should be. And so he was bewildered bewildered because he didn't know the ways of the Father. And that leads to the second thing, and that is the lament or lamentation of the believer who does not know the ways of a Father. He renews his desire to die. We see that he has an improper view of life. He says, why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and had never seen, and no eye had ever seen me. I should have been as though I had not been carried from womb to womb. Now, this is reminiscent of what he actually complained in uh, chapter 3 in his first speech. Why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb, and expire? Why did knees receive me? Why the breast that I should suck? For now I would have been laying down and quiet. I would have slept. I would have been at rest. He now sinfully repeats this. Having confessed that he knows that he has been created tenderly and carefully by God, but because he cannot see the Father's love, he says, why didn't you let me die at birth? Why allow me not to be stillborn? Why was I not carried right away from the birthing room to the tomb? He continued about life. Would he not let my few days alone and withdraw from me that I may have a little cheer? A little cheer. That's what he wanted. He says, just leave me alone. I wish you had taken my life when it happened. You didn't, but now, Lord, just leave me alone. I'm soon going to die. Can you not let some sunshine, some smile, at least relent in attack upon attack? So you see in his lament, he did not have a proper view of life. We also see that he had an improper view of death. And so he expresses himself then, about death in the last two verses. Before I go, and I shall not return, to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom as darkness itself, of deep shadow without order, and which shines as the darkness. 
Now, if you remember back to chapter 3, Job idealized death. Um, he thought this would be great. I'll be at rest. But notice now that the difference. And you read these words and you're thinking, now, has Job forgotten about a soul and eternal life? He knew it, but he had forgotten. He looks now at the grave, not as a doorway to eternity, but as the Bible will describe the grave, often, particularly in the Psalms, as a place of punishment. In fact, our catechism interprets the phrase in the Apostles' Creed descended into Hades or hell, as this, in fact, refers to the punishment of lying in the grave for three days. And so basically, he sees now death not by what's beyond it, but again by a further manifestation of God's judgment. So he tells us some very important things about death. He tells us, as we well know, that death is final, that we're not going to return uh, from the grave until Christ returns. He tells us that the grave as a place of punishment is but uh, dark, gloom, even a light that shined there would be dark, and it's very disordered. You know, before he spoke about lying down with kings and such, and you think about uh, some of the great uh, uh, classic pieces, poems from the past, and uh, Hades, and, and all of that, but um, uh, no, it was completely disordered. And I would remind you that there, this is a very real sense, that it's going to quickly become disordered, you're going to be one clump of ash and dust. Why then spend so much money to preserve what cannot be preserved? Make a confession, even in your burial, that you know that, yes, you'll turn to dust and ashes, and a, a casket can't hinder that. Oh, it might for a period of time, and I've seen... Uh, funeral directors sell them that way, you know, but uh, no. Understand that this is, in fact, what death is. But the difference is between the believer's death and the death of the unbeliever. The death of the unbeliever is exactly what Job describes here and leads to an eternal life that is worse than what Job uh, describes here. But our death, because our Savior has been and returned, is, is very very different. But you see his lament. He lost any sight of God's fatherly love. He has an improper view of life, an improper view of death. And so we learn the lesson that if a believer fails to understand the ways of God, he will fall into despair. That's what happened to Job, isn't it? He could not reconcile God's fatherly love and the experience of his life. But you see, we're not left in that situation, my friends. We're not left bewildered about the Father's love for us as children. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. 
And what he did to his son are the very things here that Job complains about. He did cast off his son. He shaped him in his mother's womb. He brought him out. He blessed his life. He adorned him with the spirit. And then he abandoned him. Abandoned him to his enemies, to a treacherous friend, to condemnation by the civil and, and uh, religious courts. And above all, abandoned him as he hanged on the cross and, and the guilt of our sin was imputed to him. Abandoned him in death and burial, but not completely. You see, there begins the difference. Because his body, we were told in Psalm 16, would not decay. As a proof to us that his death and burial was the defeat, the defeat of death. And that in him, we would be raised again to newness of life. Now he did this. God gave his own son in this manner that he might make us his sons and daughters. Is that not what we read in Galatians chapter 4? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us. And that means he had to offer himself as a sin offering for us that we might become the sons and daughters of God. And thus we are. And it is a grand privilege. But if you remember from our confession of faith, when it describes then our privileges as adoption, one of those privileges under our adoption is in fact the chastening of our Father. And we read about this in Hebrews chapter 4, chapter 12, verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. There, furthermore, we've had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respect them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits? You see, God is a loving Father. He never brings anything into your life that is not for your good. Maybe you can't see it at the time. But He loves you if you're in Christ. And it's with great restraint that He must chasten you. But the very fact that you're being chastened by God is proof that you belong to Christ. And when you doubt, then take the very things that Job said and reverse them. Remind yourself who God is, how he made you, of the love he has bestowed upon you, and how he's kept you. That no one can snatch you from his hand. No one can come between you and the love of God. As we come out of the Lord's table... It reminds us that we are the adopted children of God, that we are under God's protection and care. He invites us then to come to the table and to feast with him and on him to testify to us that in all of our trials, in all of our deep distresses, he loves us as father. He loves you as father regardless of that which he calls you to endure.
It's always for good. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.